0: Well, it's great to be back, to be with you. Greetings, a greeting for those who are new and maybe new with us. Indeed, it's something of an occupational hazard when you're a teacher at a Bible school and you get invited to preach. The pastor always thinks, oh, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna find the hardest passage since these are a real professional. But in this case, I was saved because Martin took into account the seniority of uh, the Bible director. And so he gave the passage on Melchizedek to Mike. Thank you, Mike. (laughs) And the easy one on David to myself. In any case, I hope you have your Bible open uh, to 2 Samuel, chapter 7. Uh, at the Bible school, I find it interesting that one of the classes that the students uh, enjoy the most, when I ask them at the end of the year, we have quite a few classes over the first year, what's one of the classes that has helped you the most and is the most appreciated? It is Introduction to the Old Testament. And I think one reason is it, it's a class that really helps for those who come, even with a significant experience in a local church to realize how the whole Bible tells one big story. But I think their feedback also reminds me that it's not always easy, is it? To see how the Bible fits together and to see how we need to understand how the Old Testament prepares us to see Jesus. And some of the things that are most important about Jesus, we see in the Old Testament. If we don't spend time in the Old Testament, we're not really going to understand fundamentally who Jesus is. And As you know, you can know a lot of things about someone, right? And perhaps not know some of the most important things about them. You could have a neighbor and you could chat every week across the fence and talk about the weather and talk about kids and talk about all kinds of things and never realize that this guy is the CEO of the big company in Lausanne. a secret agent for the U.S. government or I don't know what, but you could miss something that's very important and, and that's what we want to we, we not avoid that. And that's why it's really worth spending time listening to how the Old Testament prepares us for Jesus. And that way we have to, in some way, step away to see better. Like Geneva, if you want to get a good view of Geneva, you could go up to the top of Salève. I hope you've had the experience. From the top of Salève, you see an amazing view of Geneva. To see that view, you have to leave the city, don't you? Take the bus and take the trail and hike up or run up, I recommend that. And then from the top, you can look down. And so that's what we're doing. We're we're stepping back into the Old Testament to get a better view of who Jesus is. And here we have 2 Samuel 7, which many scholars would say is one of the most important chapters of the Bible. Because here God is very clear and he tells David that there is going to be a coming king. Now that is not that new. In fact, that's a promise we could link back to many different other passages before it in the Old Testament. For example, Abraham, when God promised to Abraham, Abraham, your descendants will be a blessing to every nation of the whole world. And even at that point, God told Abraham, kings will come from you. You will give birth to kings. And here, at a high point in David's life, God is going to repeat that promise and he's going to also clarify something new, something that up to this point he has not disclosed, he has not revealed, and that is that this king, there will be a coming king who will reign forever. His rule will be eternal. And that's what we're going to see today, and to meditate on that, I just, uh... I propose that we, we look at this in four different ways first let's think about how we need a king who's like david from this passage why we need a king that's better than david the king god promised and then how we respond to that king today so let's first look w- why we need a king like david now look at the first verse look how this passage begins second samuel 7 1 when the king lived in his house or we could translate that palace He lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. We have a summary phrase of David, who is the most important king in the Old Testament, and here we have a climatic moment in his life. He has at last moved into his palace, into the royal city. He has victory over his enemies, and he has rest, a rest that is shared with the nation. And uh, that word is important, rest. But it doesn't just mean plopping down in a hammock for a snooze or taking a nap, right? The, the, the word rest in the Old Testament in the Bible means what? It's a little complicated to define, but I think a good way to think about it is it's a celebration of a project finished, a celebration and enjoyment of an important project that's finished. In fact, at the very beginning of the Bible, who rests? Right? God himself. After creating the world, after putting Adam and Eve in the world, after giving them a garden, having a perfect relation with them, with them, God rests on the seventh day. But then what happened? That that rest and that celebration, that enjoyment of this amazing world that God created, created was broken. Adam and Eve rebelled. They were exiled from the garden. They knew life. Now, that was uh, unrestful. That was troublesome. That was full of um, hassle, either being boring or being violent and and, uh, characterized by insecurity. And we know the story, how, how sin has broken down this rest. Well, God came to Abraham and promised that through him, all the families of the worst would be blessed. And we can trace that story. And we see in the history of Israel that the people did not always know rest. In fact, their history is something of a yo-yo going up to times where they called out to God and they enjoyed a season of rest and security. And then afterward, a king or the judge or the leader would fall away and the people would fall down into oppression and difficulty. And they would cry back to the Lord and back and forth and back and forth. And we see building in the story of israel the need for more stability the need for a king and here at last we have a king a king that god chose king david and he was a good king he was a shepherd king and here in this passage up to this point david has done just about everything right he has defeated the giant goliath by trusting in god he has defeated the enemies, the Philistines, who had hassled the people for generations. He has conquered the capital city, He has come into Jerusalem and claimed it as his own. He has brought an end to the civil war. And most importantly, he has put God at the center. David was a king that trusted God. He was a human king that relied fully on God. And in fact, the chapter right before, we see David bringing God's dwelling place, the tent, into the capital city, Jerusalem, and the celebration. And here, David's at rest. And we have an image of what a good king can do for the people. Look down at verse 10. God God comes back and he's even more explicit of his plan to, to use David for the good of the people. Verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. And as scholars point out, there's three elements here. There's a place, a sense of home, there's a sense of peace, they will be disturbed no more, a real shalom, a full peace and security, and there's a rest, a celebration of this project, of this home and this peace that is there. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? A people who knew conflict and civil war and violence now live under a king who brings peace. And I don't know if you're, you realize, I mean, we live in a culture now that's pretty individualistic. This is God's plan to bring peace to his people through a king our peace and our well-being is related to the king and to the leader who's over us and here we see this picture god's chosen king bringing god's peace peace with god at the center to his people i mean i don't i don't know what you think when you think of the word kingdom now, I'm, I'm an american and uh, you know, I think monarchies and kings feels a bit antiquated at best and maybe a bit oppressive at worst. A few weeks ago, we celebrated July 4th when we signed our Declaration of Independence to get rid of our, our British king. But uh, I know you, you Brits, you are much more uh, in touch with monarchies. And, but isn't it true that all of us, wherever we come from deep down, we do have a longing for a home, a real home, don't we? And don't we have a longing for uh, a peace, a kind of full shalom? And, and one that is protected, and one that lasts, and one where we can celebrate this sense of rest. And that's what we're all looking forward to vacation, even though vacation, does it really give us that deep, soul-satisfying, lasting rest? I think not always, well, at least, I'm discovering when you have a child of 10 months old, Vacations are more complicated. But but we do long for that. I think there's there's that famous quote from C.S. Lewis, I'm sure you've heard of it, on heaven. And he says, you know, there's times when I, I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It's that secret longing behind our other longings. And in a sense, I wonder if we don't desire God's kingdom like that at the end of the day, if that's the thing that we desire more than anything else. A sense of peace, a sense of celebration with God, the living God at the center. And maybe when life is going well, we're not so aware of that, but I don't know what you guys are going through this morning, but often when life is hard, that longing is sharpened, isn't it? And we realize that we are not home here in this life. We are not fully home. We are not fully at peace. Things are not the way they should be. And here we have a picture of God's King who can bring that. Okay, we need a king like David. That leads me to the second point, and that is why we need a king greater than David. Because what happens in this chapter? David's in his palace, he's in his house, a nice house, it's got cedar walls, and he realizes something is missing. See in verse two? The king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God, which is almost always considered his, his throne, his, the place where he was most present dwells in a tent. And uh, God's Ark, of course, also symbolizes his presence with his people. It was in the tent, the tabernacle. And in fact, if we go back to Deuteronomy, God promised that one day he would select a place where he would establish his name, a more permanent place. And God's uh, David's, David's idea here is not so bad, is it? I'm living in a nice palace. God's in the tabernacle. I should do something about this, after all. Let's, uh, let's build a house for God. In that sense, let's build a temple. In fact, it was something that kings in this era would often do. The king had the responsibility to establish and build the temple for their gods. And I think here, David, is not just, he's not just bothered by the fact that he has better wall paneling than in the temple or his house is more solid. I think David's realizing uh, that he wants God's blessing and his presence to be permanent, right? He's in a tabernacle, it moves around, and he says, God, I wanna build you a temple. I want the fact that you're here, you're present with us to be lasting, to be permanent. And uh, we can understand that. David's here at a high point, And his desire for permanency, if we step back, sort of reflects his big problem. Because what's the problem David has? He's the king. He's the king chosen by God. But just like all the other high points, what happened? Kings get old, don't they? And kings die. How do you establish a plan that doesn't just last the lifetime of a good king? See that? And and this is a problem. I think David, his desire to build a house for God, to say, God, okay, settle in. Put down foundations. We want you bolted down with cement pillars here, reflects this problem that the, the best rest so often we can experience here is but temporary. In fact, isn't it true that we have this same problem? I mean, we live in a context where things are pretty stable, aren't they? And things are pretty good overall we don't know as much of all the people of israel went through the civil war the violence the the warfare but how long will it last especially if we think really really long term i mean after all think of what the few, last few years have held right who saw covid coming <laughs> you imagine that the upheaval we just went through few okay or, or a hot war in europe in 2022 we I mean, were we expecting that OK, what are the next decades going to hold for us? How do we know someone is going to be there to take care of us and to give us this kind of peace and this kind of home in the long, long-term future? You know, it's good to have a good insurance program and to plan for retirement and to plan ahead, but what about even after that? I mean, what is the next decades and millions going to hold for this world? I remember when I was I was doing my theological studies. We lived in a um, we decided to live in one of the poorest neighborhoods of uh, the North Chicagoland area because we wanted to understand the context and and uh, we were sort of a multicultural house. We had this project and we did a training on working with those in poverty. I remember one of the principles for those working in poverty is that you have to try to change the culture of living only in the present. It's interesting. They talk about those who who live in this kind of poverty. Their life is today. In fact, it's interesting, even the young people, when they talked about where they lived, they would use the verb, stay. Because they're often moving around. I'm staying with my grandma, I'm staying with my mom. They didn't live anywhere. They were always staying someplace and moving around. And if you had money, what do you do? You spent it. Because today I have money, I'm going to spend it. I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. And and everything was in the present. And the whole challenge was to try to help people think, okay, I, I know the present's important, but think longer delayed gratification. You can do things now that will make your future much better. And okay, maybe today we're not living in that kind of poverty. But if we align what fills our day often, the concerns we have, the worries we have, with the perspective of the Bible, we very much have that problem, don't we? I mean, there's a tremendous pressure on us today to think about now, to think about today, to think about the future, but f- finally, fairly short-term future. And what matters, <laughs> according to the Bible, is long-term, even really long-term future. Not just at the end of our life, but after the end of our life. And of course, one of the dominant sort of themes, at least in the public sphere, is sec- secular naturalism, in which at the end of our life, we're just sort of, we lose consciousness, we exist at its ends, and that's it. Okay, but, but would you agree that most people throughout most of history had a different perspective, that there was at least something at the end, after death, that goes beyond? In fact, my, my wife, she came to Christ as an adult, and I was talking to her about this this week. I said, honey, what, what did you, um, how did you think about life after death before you were a Christian? And it was interesting, she said, well, it made me uncomfortable. And so I tried to think about the least as possible. And I think it can make us uncomfortable. Are we ready? Are we ready not just for the end of our lives, are we ready for after and for the eternal and very long-term future? And the Bible is very, very clear that there is an eternity, that we are made in God's image, that God is eternal, and as God is eternal, we are eternal, and what, who is gonna be there for us really long-term is a very, very important question. And David's got this problem. He's getting old, he's gonna grow old. And so in his day, he said, what if we build a temple? What if we make God's presence here permanent? Okay, and what, how does God respond? And there we see the king that God promises. And after all, David does seem to have like a good idea, but how does God respond? Uh, the, the project uh, gets knocked down pretty quick. That very night, Nathan speaks, uh, God speaks to Nathan the prophet. He comes back to David. And he answers in verse five, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Now at one level we could say yes to that question, right? David, will you build me a house? Well, of course, I built myself a palace, I conquered the city, I could build you a house. But clearly the answer that God is expecting is no. And I think God here is gently rebuking David and reminding him David, what matters about me is not just the house I have. In fact, that's not how I communicate my reputation. Look how God goes on in verse 6. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And And God is saying, look, what, David, I don't need you to milk a house for me. I was living in a tent since the day I rescued my people. In fact, what's... What tells people about who I am is not just how nice the paneling is in the building that's associated with me, but how I've treated the people. How I rescued them, how I was with them, how I stuck with them, and how I walked with them wherever they went. And then we have, God goes on, and here we have the big surprise of uh, the chapter. And the surprise comes in a play on words, In fact, eight times in this chapter, the word house in Hebrew is used with three different meanings. In verse uh, one, the the word house means palace. In verse five, it refers to temple. But there's a third meaning we're going to see in this chapter, and that is the word house as royal family or royal dynasty. As an American, we don't have very many royal houses, but right, you Brits, you have the house of Windsor, the house of... I think rumor has it there's a, there's a veritable house of slack, isn't there? No. <laughs> <laughs> not sure. But it's the idea of a house, of a royal lineage, of a family that, that goes on. And uh, in this chapter, God says, In fact, David, you're not going to build a house for me, I'm going to build a house for you. He turns the tables. And in this promise of God building a house for David, uh, there's, there's three levels. He gives a promise that's going to touch the short term, one that's going to influence the medium term, and then the long term. And you can, we could can think of it as sort of like three mountain ranges. You know, we're here in Lausanne, we see a hill in Lausanne, after we see the Gramont on the other side, and maybe if we had a really good view, we could see the, the, the Matterhorn on the back. Three different levels in which this promise of God building a house for David is going to be... Um, accomplished. And look at the short term. The short term is that God will accept that a house is built for him in Jerusalem. In fact, that was his plan. And that his son, Solomon, will build the temple in Jerusalem. God will accept having a house. He doesn't need it. And he's not a God that can be contained in a house. And when Solomon inaugurates, When they have the inauguration ceremony for the temple, Solomon will make it very clear that God does not live and does not need a house. The whole universe cannot hold God. But in his grace, God came and he chose and he accepted to be present with his people through the temple. And the temple is going to be a tremendous blessing for the people for generations in Jerusalem. Solomon will build God a house in the short term. But then it gets better. Then we see the medium term fulfillment. And what is that? And look at verse 14. God promises that he will be faithful and committed to David's descendants. And he will not treat them like they deserve, but he will treat them according to his steadfast love. See in verse 14? I will be to him a father speaking of david's offspring his son and he shall be to me a son and when he commits iniquity i will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men but my steadfast love will not depart from him but god goes on to compare david's and his family with the family of saul it's it's a big deal in the context here because we've just seen saul fail he disobeyed god several times and God was fair to fire Saul from the job of king. He had, he had been warned, and Saul got what he deserves. But here, God says, I'm gonna act with you, David, differently. I'm not gonna give you and your descendants what you deserve, I'm gonna be committed to you no matter what, I'm gonna adopt you like my own son. And I'm not gonna be indifferent when you commit iniquity, I will chastise, uh, and the words are strong there, but my steadfast love will not depart. I'm gonna stick with your offspring. And then, um, and then we get the last element of the promise, and this is the most important and the biggest. And what is it? Look down at verse 13. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And that is the big news of this chapter. One day, God will set up a king who will reign forever. And that is the key word. It's repeated three times, verse 13, twice in verse 16, this king will rule forever. Now that is an astounding promise, isn't it? I mean, if there's one quality kings have, is that they get old and die, right? was a problem in David's time. It was a problem in the judge's time. It's a problem today. It's a problem for joe biden he's getting old he fell off his bike the other day and it made international news because why, why is biden uh, tripping off his bike international news because we're all worried about the state of his health if he goes a a term he'll be 86 that's pretty old isn't it and what we have the best king in the world you have the best thing but one day they get old and die in that sense the political history of the world has been that good things never end, never last. They, they pass away. And here God says, my plan is to unite the kingdoms of this world and to one day have a king who never gets old, never retires, and who lasts and rules forever. Yeah. What a promise. And you know, a, a thousand years later, what did God say when he came by an angel to a young woman In Judea angel comes and Luke 130 the angel said to her do not be afraid Mary you have found favor with God and behold you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus he will be great he will be called the son of the Most High and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom there will be no end this was This is the first announcement. I mean, God summarized the significance of the life of Jesus in in these phrases. He will be the son of the Most High, and he will be a son of David, and he will sit on David's throne. This will be someone who is God himself come to take the form of a human king and to reign forever. And, And here is the promise that God had made and that God fulfilled. And of course, that's what we see in the life of Jesus, don't we? Jesus comes, and he lives a perfect life. And at the end of his life, he does die, and he is killed on a cross by the Roman authorities. He is crowned with a crown of thorns. The disciples are very confused, and then we have Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, God raises him from the dead with a life that is indestructible. And Jesus is risen, and later he ascends to heaven where he reigns, and he reigns forever. This, the, the cross and the resurrection are the announcement that this promise was true, and this promise has been fulfilled perfectly in the person of Jesus. So how do we respond? How do we respond to this king? Just flip back to uh, Samuel, Second Samuel. Just flip down to verse 21. This is how David responds. Like, he gives us a good example. Because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Isn't that beautiful? You are great, God, because of this promise. And this promise is so big, and it's so wonderful, there is no one like you. And isn't that reality just, fleshed out in a thousand new ways as we come to see and know Jesus and how the Bible presents him? I mean, there is no one like Jesus. There's no king like Jesus. And that's what we have to see. If we push back and we think, oh gosh, King Jesus, giving my whole life to follow King Jesus, submitting to King Jesus, uh, that is not possible until we really begin to see at what point he is a perfectly good king and he is a king who will rule forever. If those things are true, we can gladly follow him and we could gladly trust him and live in the joy knowing that he is the supreme king. But I do find it interesting how often we are disappointed, no matter what culture, with our political leaders. Do you have the same feeling? not you compare talking to someone about, from their culture about a natural resource, so talk to the Swiss about the Alps. You know, what do you think about the Alps? They're going to say they're wonderful, right? We're they're proud. I mean, look at these Alps. Look at the. Okay, talk to a, a Californian about the California beaches. They're great. They're the the, the sunsets and the palm trees and it's warm without being humid. And uh, you know, or an Icelander about the Aurora Borealis. Or we could go on and on. Okay, but talk to a Swiss person, or an American, or an Icelander about their politicians. I will bet the the reaction will be a little bit more mixed. I think one reason we are very often disappointed is that we were made for this kingdom, like I mentioned. And we are longing for a good king who will really bring us home. And, And maybe one way we could think about it is, you know, today we are we are forced to accept all kinds of enemies that shouldn't be a part of our world and our lives. The injustice, we, we know that injustice is not good. Everyone knows that. And as Christians, we know it's not God's plan. But so often we deal and live with injustice and we see it in the society and we even see it in our own lives. Or the religious and the moral hypocrisy. So often it's present, isn't it? And even with the best leadership, we have a hard time of, of getting these enemies out or what if we go deeper? What if we talk about sickness? You know, sickness is an enemy that's not part of the original life God intended for us. Through sin, the world's broken. It's a reality today. And we, can't, we can maybe have a health system that's pretty good, but we can't throw out sickness for good, can we? Or, or the hostility of the created world, the storms and the fires that we're dealing with. Or maybe even the worst, our own sin and guilt. See, our leaders can't deal with that very easily. Or what about the biggest enemy of all, death itself? Now imagine a king who came in and said, you know, I'm a king, and just as David threw out the Philistines' enemies, I can throw out these enemies. Who walked around and who could throw out religious hypocrisy, who could see it right through, call it out, who could bring justice, who was perfectly just, who could throw out disease and sickness, who could tell sick people, stand up, who could heal, who could, uh, can you imagine a king, or even more than that, a king that could forgive sin, who could tell people your sins are forgiven, who would have the divine commission and authority to do that, or even more than that, what if a king who could defeat death itself? I mean, every leader bows before death. Can you imagine a king who come, and before this king, death itself would bow down? And that is exactly what we have in the New Testament. That is exactly what we have in Jesus, don't we? Jesus is the king who throws out the enemies, our deepest and worst enemies. And his ultimate proof is when he takes on our sin and our guilt himself, and he, he takes on that cross, and he is crowned with a crown of thorns, taking my place, taking your place, and then three days later, coming back and making death die, making death bow down before him, and coming back with a life that is eternal and infinite. This is our king. This is your king. This is the the offer right now. Jesus reigns. Jesus is the true son of David, and he will reign forever. He is infinitely good, and he is eternal, which means, obviously, the relationship you and I have with this King is the most important part of us, isn't it? The relationship we have, whether good or whether bad, to this King is the most important part about us because we will deal with Him. He is eternal and we are eternal and we will answer to Him. Now obviously that's a a whole other Discussion, but the New Testament makes it clear that we live in a kind of an unusual time. We live in an in-between. Jesus came. God fulfilled this promise. Jesus ascended into heaven, but he's not come again to fully establish his kingdom. That's why we still deal with some of these enemies, the injustice and the sickness and everything else. The king, Jesus proved to us he's capable, but he hasn't fully come back. And so we live in a very unusual but exciting time, an in-between where Jesus is is the true king now and he's drawing together a people who will worship and put him first before he comes again and I just say let's live well in this in between time and I just exhort you to two things one let's not stay silent about this king he is infinitely good and he is eternal how can we not talk about this with others and I think so often our fear and our lack of passion for evangelism comes not just from the lack of our competences or the fact that we just don't have the time, but sometimes we're just not seeing how good and our hearts are not spilling over with the joy of knowing this king. That God was faithful to his promise to David, that God sent as a king, and that's the deepest need that we have, and he came and he proved it, and he died, and he rose, and we can know him by his spirit. And let's, let's tell. Let's not be silent. Let's share the message of King Jesus. This is good news. Jesus is king. That is the best news this world could ever hear. And then let's not stay indifferent to the, the, the suffering and the need and the practical things around us. Let's imitate this king who gave himself for us in our need. I, I, when I was young, I wasn't a big fan of classical music, but I did like Handel's Messiah. Handel's Messiah is quite a, quite a piece, isn't it? And I was so touched at the end, at the final, sort of the, the climax of Handel's Messiah, these words, the, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Just a beautiful climax with all the choral voices singing. And I was, I was looking at it this week, I discovered that in the Handel, he didn't write the text, a friend had written the text and he set it to music, and he had gone through some hard financial difficulties and even was threatened with going to debtor's prison. But fortunately, then, his financial fortunes changed. And then he wrote The Messiah. And at first, it took a, a while to be well accepted, but then it became popular. And what Handel would do is he would host concerts for, to raise money for those in debtor's prison and to give to, the, to orphans and other needy children in London, I believe. Now, that, that's, a, that's a cool image, right? Singing of the beauty of this king who will reign forever and ever, inspired by the beauty, and bringing to, to collect resources to go out and then help those who are in great need. I hope in a very small way that's a picture of our worship. As we see the beauty of Jesus, as we see the glory of who he is as a king, as we come together as his people and say, Jesus, you are king. You are the king. You are the true son of David. It would fill us with fresh energy and fresh motivation to go out and be like him. Let me pray.